Welcome, dear listener. It's that time of the month again. Yes, it's your monthly Weekend at Crombie's Fix. And this is volume three, of course, our third year. Episode six. That's right, it's June. I can count. And this episode, we're going to be discussing the film Memphis Fell. Welcome, dear listener, to Season 3, Episode 6 of Weekend at Crombie's. I'm Hugh. I've recorded 24 episodes without a scratch. One more and I get to go home. And I'm Dr. James Evans Esquire. Flaps! <laughs> Thank you, James. For tonight, we will be reviewing the, uh, what year was it? The 1990, I don't have the year for it. That's shocking. 1990. It was 1990. We shall be reviewing the 1990 uh, World War II bomber film Memphis Bell. Memphis Bell, yes. Where to begin? Now, I will say that uh, those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. And we have looked previously at a war film with an ensemble cast, uh, the infamous Too Late the Hero movie. So rest assured, I will do my utmost not to give intricate pen portraits of all the protagonists. <laughs> and, uh, I don't think it's possible to give an intricate pen portrait of the characters in Memphis Bell, but uh, I'm you sure hear, you'll try. Did you, did you hear the Too Late the Hero thing where I gave, I managed to find the names <laughs> for every single one of the patrol that got killed? You did, you did. I, did, I recall that well. Yes, but we uh, we begin in 1943. Uh, the, obviously, the big the big the air war is raging over Europe, um, and we are in England on a bombing bombing base, an American bombing base. Uh, and where do you think Where do you think it is? I'm going to go to Somerset. You think Somerset because of the accents? Well, there's just a farmer, and it goes. I don't know what they do. <laughs> And that can only be Somerset. We'll come to the portrayal of the English. Um, that is Somerset. You might be in his holidays. Uh, but uh, I would probably guess somewhere around southeast England because that's where the bombers were so they could get to Germany quicker. Oh, a busman's holiday then. They didn't, they, didn't, you know, they didn't put them in Anglesey. They'd be quite a long way to fly for pointless. <laughs> I suppose this person might be from Somerset. Indeed. I think he was just, you know, cast. let's cast a yokel. I feel we're getting off topic. <laughs> let's pen portrait the farmer. Who's in one scene in Memphis? <laughs> well, I will say actually, one of my points with the film is there's um the the English in you know this in in this war film up trade as either um randy women or confused farmers. That's that's yeah. the inter- yeah. toothless confused farmers. Yes, um, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, in, in, uh, yes, well, we're starting backwards here. But yeah, the whole the whole concept of this was actually going to be a, a British bomber crew mission and sort of the money took over and it became um an american bomber thing but the one of the producers kind of lamented the fact he'd never get to make his british bomber film now david putnam david putnam. so when you when you um when you mentioned that oh you can't see what's wrong with it farmer <laughs> that was the legacy of the the british influence that was I don't, know, I don't know what you've been shouting about oh, he's been living in east london all my blooming life <laughs> that was that, that, that's why i don't do accents like, i mean it's no anthony hopkins is it <laughs> Don't, don't. <laughs> but we digress. We're in a bomber base, and um, friend of the podcast, John Lithgow. Um, uh, third he, film, third film. 
third film yes he's certainly a favorite uh he is the one who introduces us to the uh to half the crew they're all playing american football and we see them from a long a long distance as if we're looking at them the way he does and he's going through their personnel files so it's quite a neat way of bringing us up to speed on who the six characters are because he's basically um it is quite amusing that he basically says oh and these are all the stereotypes look there's a religious one there there's a randy one there there's an aggressive one there. <laughs> and it's like, the irish one he could yeah, be more irish if he tried yeah, which is, of course, Eric Stoltz uh, reading poetry on an airfield as his ginger hair flaps in the breeze. As he sings, oh, Danny Boy. <laughs> as he sings, Danny Boy, yes. <laughs> I mean, he literally does. Yeah. So, in fact, John Lithgow could be the guy next to you in the cinema talking about this. Or yeah. the voice in your brain just going, like, this is what these characters are. Yeah. But I quite like John Lithgow to be the voice in my brain. Oh, that'd be quite nice, yeah. What are you doing today? <laughs> it's John Lithgow. Please, <laughs> stick, to John. Your, stick, to, stick to Anthony Hopkins. I somehow been into Irish, man. There. <laughs> what are you doing today, you damn fool? <laughs> oh. I did press record on this tonight because, you know, I'd be yeah. quite happy to start again. <laughs> it's only taken six minutes for racial stereotyping to come through. <laughs> but uh, as we were saying, it's... um. It, I, I find it a quite a neat technique, partly again to to bring us up to speed with who's who, mm. because of course all the problems with war films is you've basically got um, mostly white cast, in fact, case all white cast in this film um, of people all the same age, all wearing the same clothes, um, all, and covered, all doing the same thing, doing the same thing. So you need to you need something there, and of course they they have they basically got you know the guy there who's a bit shy and bumbling, the guy there who's a bit randy, the guy there who's yeah. a bit aggressive, the guy the there guy, who's the, guy, the guy who's who's uh, never had sex before, whose nickname is Virgin. Yes, the broad strokes, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the... the, the guy of the, sex and his name's Rascal. <laughs> of, of, all the, of all the cliches and caricatures, what defines you in this film, then? Well, n- nothing other than I'm a virgin. <laughs> but he might also be Irish. We have the guy who's Eric Stoltz, and we'll have the guy who's got red hair who isn't Eric Stoltz. Because <laughs> yeah. that's what you're doing with Jeff saying, who's that guy? Oh, he's got the red hair, and he's not Eric Stoltz. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so we, we meet the, the six, um, six men. We don't know why we're meeting them at the moment, actually, although John Lithgow then talks to the, uh, the head of the base. We say John Lithgow, in fact, we should say, is, uh, is Major Bruce. Um, I don't know what his last name is. The other one goes by the first name, Bruce Derringer. Um, he's talking yeah. to to the colonel of the base, David Strathairn, um, and basically is is nice enough to dump a lot of exposition, saying these the crew. This is the crew of the Memphis Bell. In case we hadn't forgotten the Memphis Bell, being a B seventeen bomber, and they have flown twenty four missions. And when they fly their twenty fifth mission, which is tomorrow, they will complete their tour of duty, and they will be the first crew to do so. So they're going to be taken off on a big PR spin um, around the American, United States. And all good things happen. They'll do war bond drives and and publicity stunts and whatnot. So the it's it's all going to be gravy for this crew if they get through their twenty fifth and final mission. And Bruce's job as as a PR is the guy there to to make that all happen. Um, yeah. Where he he talks to the uh, the the four officers. So that's like the the pilot, the navigator, the bombardier, and the co-pilot. Um, mm-hmm. Which again is incredibly broad strokes. You have uh, you have Matthew Modine, who's Captain Dennis Dearborn. He's the he's incredibly straight laced, even for Matthew Modine. Um, and yeah. then you you have Tate Donovan, who's the co-pilot, who's basically gurning away. Um, we're gonna be famous! Yeah. Oh, damn, we're gonna be famous! <laughs> Leaping around, putting thumbs up <laughs> yeah. to the camera. Um, you have Billy Zane, um, who appears to have Billy just Zane. brought his mustache. Yeah. At least he had hair, though. Yeah, 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 the mustache, yeah, the uh, the the Billy Zane, uh, the, the cad tash, um, and then a bit Sean Connery esque, I think. 
Oh, yes. And then and now, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, and then the DB Sweeney was the, the navigator, Phil Lowenthal, um, who is quite clearly suffering from combat fatigue. Um, mm. But no one seems to notice this. I mean, he literally is in the fetal position as they're talking to him and, uh, and you know, saying, I don't want to go on this mission. I think we're going to yeah. die. It's not just back <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, give us a smile. Come on, give us a smile. A uh, smile. <laughs> <laughs> so that's 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 the 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 cast basically. So we've got the the ten men of the Memphis Bell, um, and they got yeah, on their last mission tomorrow. Um, in the meantime, you know, there's a there's a, a dance around the big airbase, and uh, there's lots of jitterbugging and what have you. Well, uh, yeah. But also, also, I think we ought to before we move on to that. Let, let's let's just have a, a a cast list. So we've got Matthew Modine, Tate Donovan, DB Sweeney, Billy Zane, Eric Stoltz. Shauna Austin, aka Goonies and Lord of the Rings. We've got Harry Connick Jr. in there. First well. film, I think. Yeah, first film, Harry Connick Jr., David Strathairn, and John Lithgow. So, you know, it's, it, the cast goes deep. The, the cast goes deep. Well, beyond that, we have um, Jane, yeah, Horrocks. Jane Horrocks as random girl that the Virgin hooks up with. <laughs> yeah. uh, we have Stephen McIntosh as um, one, yes. of rookie, one of the yes, rookie crews that um, Rick right. Stoltz takes pity on. And... Um, in in the in the canteen line, a random captain that uh, that um, that uh, Matthew Modine is boring to death is played by Ben Browder, who lately became the star of Farscape. So, hats oh. off to the hats off to the casting agent here because they they filled it out. Admittedly, Hugh, only you are aware of the program Farscape. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Everyone else listening to this podcast, and by that I mean me, has no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. You've not seen Farscape. I've not seen Farscape. No. It was a rather budget uh, sci-fi thing in the mid '90s, of which I'm only just becoming reacquainted with. Um, so it's it's like when you see some random person in the line saying, "Hang on, he's going to be famous." It's quite nice. Famous. Do you, have the t- do you have the TV novella of the same name? Is is what we're all <laughs> asking. <laughs> well, I have the TV novella of all the things, of course. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the novelization of Memphis Bell. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, it's the, the cast runs deep. Um, yeah, it does. And and again, they, we see the the guys in their enlisted quarters, you know, joking around, and there's lots of to and froing. Um, we can see there's they there's they all care for each other, but they rough each other up a bit too. Um, and they're all they're all living up to their caricatures perfectly. I will say actually that the the moment the very early on in the film, the moment that shocked me the greatest was um, to see a young Sean Austin lying on his bed doing uh, squat thrusts and uh, and chin ups and push ups and yeah. and, and yeah. crunches. He wouldn't have been able to do that in Lord of the Rings. Well, I'm just thinking. That, well, the, the shocking thing up. is, you can you can do all the the ab crunches you like, and you'll stand up with a Hobbit's BMI, and it's like, well, what hope does any of us have? Uh, let's not fat shame Sean Austin. Come on. Let's not for no, certainly not. I would. I, would agree with it. But, uh, <laughs> I don't think. Was, I don't think either of us <laughs> can, can complain about that. Nonetheless, so they're uh, they're in the uh, the the dance. In fact, at this point, you're already already seeing that if of the crew of ten, they they pair off quite neatly. I mean, they talk about broad strokes. The pilot uh, Matthew Modine is very straight laced. The co-pilot yeah. is very loose and uh, and goofy. The um, the navigator, the, the 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 bombardier is very cool. The navigator is very twitchy. <laughs> Sean Austin is a ladies' man. Uh, the Virgin is the Virgin, uh, and and so on and so on. Again, the uh, the 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 waistcoat. One of them is a, is a twitchy little kid. The other one is a tough guy. And so they've all got, they've uh, all. Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz is like a poet. In Harry Connick Jr. is a is a piano playing singer, as you might yeah. expect. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so <laughs> play the type. 
Yeah, it's literally, it's literally all this kind of stuff. In fact, I've got Gina is forced to get up and sing Danny Boy because oh, uh, John, yeah, because John Lithgow makes a, a terrible mistake in asking for three cheers, which is bad luck. So he basically kills yeah. the mood of the room. So Harry John Gina leaps up and starts tinkling the ivories, and everyone starts having a big old jig. Um, Contractually John... forced. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Let's find a way for him to play the piano. <laughs> Can we get a piano on the bummer? Yeah. <laughs> Can we get to the tail section? Is there room? But but nonetheless, again they're having and during which of course yes, um, young young Virgil uh, the Virgin actually manages to hook up with Jane Horrocks in the plane, which was actually quite a funny scene. Again, Jane Horrocks does a lot with the little she has, but he's basically she sits on a spanner, doesn't she? Sits sits on a spanner, um, and he, no, he that's not a euphemism. She literally yeah. sits on a spanner. But he's so nervous. He uh, he's like he's saying, "Oh, I found my my wrench. I'm so I'm so well." And she's like, "Would you forget the wrench?" So they start kissing, and he drops it on her foot. So there's a lot. Of, uh, <laughs> She actually has. She does well for the five minutes that she's in the film. Actually, she's quite quite right. a memorable character. Right to meeting up with Virgin, she's a rascal is trying to charm her, and she's just chewing gum and looking yeah. so incredibly bored with him. Um, yeah. But so it was. Uh, so that's fun. So in, um, and that's about it. And also, yeah, during this dance, um, the the navigator Lieutenant Phil uh, gets incredibly drunk and screams to the heavens that he doesn't want to die, which is quite haunting, really, because they they do play it with the music and the you know, the the planes looking over in the dusk and this kind of stuff, which does it comes right after Harry Connick Jr.'s musical tone. So well, it's, I uh, think it's yes, I, I, I think it's 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 a good point, and there are moments of um, as you might expect in a, in a in a war film, irrespective of how caricatured some of the characters are there are moments of solemnity and um somberness as well as the the kind of the camaraderie as well and, and that's one of those yeah again Stephen mcintosh who is a, a fellow radio operator from a different plane he's a rookie they've just arrived and to hammer home the point all these all these bombers of course have kind of pin-up names they're sort of uh memphis bell and then um seek up and then there's uh home sweet home home sweet home like yeah, that. yeah. and uh, they, they they fly mother and country <laughs> and yeah they do, they? yeah and so the crew of Memphis Bell gathers around to tease the rookies um and when they sort of mention oh you're gonna die in your first mission he immediately dashes off to the loo and throws up at which point Eric Stoltz shows pity on him to show he's kind of the mother of the group yeah, yeah. and but, you know fair enough don't say that just before they're gonna go yeah I'm just kidding there so that's a bit much isn't it and then laugh yeah, they're all they're all sort of Joey Joe <laughs> He's clearly disturbed. Um but you know, such is life in the army. Uh, or even the Air Force. But uh but so that's um that's that's the way we get introduced to them all and then we're offered the mission um we get straight to it they say it's bremen and there's a kind of a hush around the room because clearly bremen is not a nice target to fly into bremen is not good no. bremen is not good what they want is um air runs over france but they get bremen yeah uh, bremen is yeah they got <laughs> and maybe this is true or not but they in the in the the mission briefing they uh they they show them you know they these long factories that make make luftwaffe that make um, make messerschmitt so clearly you know it's it's a this is like a, they're not making bombing ball bearings or anything they're bombing things that make fighter planes so it's a it's a good target but if you don't yeah. bomb it there's a hospital on one side and there's schools on the other side yeah <laughs> and if, also if you don't bomb it you know yeah. it makes messerschmitts yeah. well they might be coming after you yeah. So you're heading right into the belly of the beast. I know, but, but you're you right there. There's a school and a hospital. It's like, oh, hospital. and oh. I thought, is there going to be like a puppy orphanage on the other side? Because <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, exactly, they're really emphasising yeah. you've got to hit these targets and no others. Oh, puppy orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, none- yeah, but nonetheless, again, they um. They were all. Everyone goes very stony faced. The navigator, he said, has been drunk all night. Has literally been dragged up and, and thrown coffee down him um, to try and get. Yeah, he doesn't look like someone I'd want navigating my way to Bremen because he looks barely conscious. Um, I've got to say, after a heavy night of drinking, 
I mean, to the extent that he looked like he'd had a heavy night of drinking. Yeah, yeah. I'd need co- coffee. Didn't work. No, no, coffee just makes you wake up. It just needs. Yeah, it makes you far more cognizant of yeah. how hungover you are, yeah. which is the worst thing you want. What you want is a nap. <laughs> <laughs> they should be but, sending. Give him a couple of hours sleep. He'd be much better when he woke up. Yeah, but um, but yeah, Bremen. So everyone's everyone's a bit, you know, um, it's business. It's business time now. They're off, they're off onto it, and so it's all solemn faces. They they go towards their plane again they're, they're, they're delayed by a couple of hours because it's cloud cover so they have to get back out of the plane again and um in fact then then um phil gets his badly needed nap he goes on top of the plane and naps but the rest of them uh they find they find um eric stoltz's uh sergeant danny boy daly's uh uh <laughs> diary into which he's been writing his poetry and they they force him to read some poetry um it's singularly one of the worst pieces of poetry i've ever heard in my life it, no, no it's not that bad. <laughs> well, before you criticize the poetry, uh, Danny can't think of anything because he hasn't got anything he wears. So yeah. he, he copies something from WB Yeats. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. joking. Imagine that. What a Philistine. <laughs> that poem doesn't even rhyme, does it? It's not a poem, it <laughs> Where's all the iambic pentameters in this? <laughs> So in fact, it's, it's quite a moving thing. He's, he's reading Yeats again across this this English field as the, the wind blows softly across his Irish hair. And, yeah. <laughs> and fact, there's, a, there's a point there's a point later in the film as well, which we'll get to. And and he, he he's in the plane and he wakes up suddenly and he shouts Yeats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Yeats. Yeah, come to why he had to shout that, but he didn't want to be thought of plagiarizing. Um, <laughs> But uh, again, that was the point also when Harry Connick Jr. Uh, is, fixes the uh, the befuddled farmer's uh, plough. Um, and as he's going along, of course, we, this is one of the side plots is that the, the Tate Donovan, the co-pilot, really wants to fire the tail gunner because he thinks he's just sitting in the, in the co-pilot seat and does nothing. Um, and there's some bizarre moment where he, he, there's some dog exchange that goes on because he's because uh, Lieutenant because Luke the the co-pilot has a dog a big old scruffy dog that you um, that you that all you must have in war movies you know to to sit there and wait for Lonnie for the plane to come back and then uh, Harry Connick Jr. says give me a dog if you want to fly the plane and he goes I'm not giving you my dog all right then yeah. <laughs> but his portrait is such a sinister thing he goes give me a dog and then he looks shocked and there's a, a jump cut somewhere else and it's like what's he planning to do with this dog it's like give me your dog that I may put its entrails it also, on the- it also <laughs> suggests that that there was more to that scene that just didn't make it into the film because it, it it's a, it's slightly off kilter and it's not really followed through no no there's nothing else nothing else what's going on there <laughs> Um, but but again, nonetheless, he gets to keep his dog, and he agreed to fire the, the tail gunner. But um, to, to cut straight to it, the, the, the planes take off, and in fact, it is a it's a very good sequence. It's the it's the age before digital effects, so these were actual B-17s that had to take off, and that uh, yeah, had to make it seem like the limited planes they had were a whole fleet of bombers. So you know, it was a it was a good old show, you know, bombing along the the, the taxiing along the run, and then it takes off, and then the skies fill up with bombers, and uh, and then the music plays. Uh, we should mention it's them. a really really impressive scene because. Yeah. Um, if if nothing else, people should watch Memphis Bell to see all of those B fifty twos taking off and and and, and landing. B seventeens. Yeah, no. No, but still though, still B fifty twos were a singing band, weren't they? Yeah, so? yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> but, yeah, but it is it's, impressive, though, isn't it? I mean, it you know, is. that, that, it's, it's just to see to see to see that group of planes take off and land. It's really impressive. Yep. Um, and off they go. They're on the mission, and 
again, as we say, lots of little micro stories happen in the mission, and we probably don't have to detail each other on them. But literally, like the the, the way scanners have a falling out, and one of them pretends there is lucky charm out of the out of the, uh, yeah. the window, and then later on, so when the he... hoodlum throws the religious ones, um, Saint Christopher, almost and out of the, the yeah. out the window. Yes, that's right. That's true. Yeah, Saint out Saint of the... it was being lost. Yeah, but, um, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> And then they, uh, and then later when the hoodlum is al- is almost injured, he gets a little scratch, and the the religious one is all worried. He gives his medal back because he just palmed it with uh, close up magic. Um, yeah, so they're friends. Then there's again, um, Sean Austin Rascal is in the the ball turret, and it it fatally jams yeah. uh, at a critical point, and Reed Diamond basically pulls him out of the he, he pulls him out of the air. The ball turret gets shot away, so Rascal is like, hanging in the mid air um, with nothing to cling on to, and then Virgil pulls him aboard, and that kind of solves their problems. <laughs> it's like that was- I don't know what's that got to do with anything other than the fact they, you know, they, they, he was happy to pull him out of a, a, an area of ten thousand feet. I think he'd do that for anyone. Yeah, sure, um, yeah, yeah. But it, it right. shows like that's their moment. They, you know, they've been they've been niggling each other because Rascals, yeah. you know, he's con- constantly talking about sex, and Virgil is very shy. Um, and but you no, know, if by pulling him out of the the, the ruined ball turret when he's about to die, that's all right, it's solved. Um, yeah, but but that's true though. They, they all each each of the crew members has their moments, don't they? You know, and yeah. they either have them individually or they have them um, in in, in, a, in a group in or a collective. Yeah, it's often in pairs. Yeah. Again, the uh, it is often in pairs. Yeah. Again, actually, one, one of the things about um, the Billy Zane's character Val uh, um, is that he is a doctor, and they're like, oh yeah, Val's going to be a doctor. Val's you know we've got a doctor on board, and um, he's been very cool. He's the bombardier. He uh, and basically um the navigator who is the one who's convinced he's going to die up to the point he's given away all his possessions just wants to drop the bombs and get out of there he has tries to he tries to prematurely drop the bombs at one point and the the billy's asked to kind of throw him off off the bomb sites or whatever mm. um and you know to tend to cool out but then when uh when disaster strikes and uh and um eric stoltz gets hit by a piece of flak and is in critical danger uh billy zane has to admit that he's not a doctor and he has two weeks of medical school he doesn't know anything um and so at this point they're thinking well you know danny should be thrown off in a parachute um so at least the doctors on in in the third right can take care of him because they can he'll never survive the journey home and that sounds uh, like a good idea doesn't it, it yeah it's not the best <laughs> But, you know, but that was that was that was genuinely contemplated to the extent that that Matthew Modine said, "Yeah, I'll go with your judgment on it." Yeah, yeah chucking out. Yeah, manhandling is actually we come to this moment. Yeah, so Danny, um, towards the end of the movie, actually gets hit by a piece of yeah. flak, and that's the the real critical point. Is you know the um, do we throw him out of the plane and take his chances, or do we you know get him back to England in a couple of hours and he won't survive? Well, the um, the point the point that they have to throw him out the plane though is because they're flying on one engine and they themselves. Um, Oh, they they are not going to get back to the base in time. Yeah. They think that he's going to die before they get back. So the best option is to throw him out of the plane. Yeah, with a parachute. To the point where they, you see them manhandling him towards the bomb bay doors. And then it cuts. And you, you don't know what's happened. Because at this point, um, Phil, the navigator, has been yelling at Val, saying, you can do it, Val. You can help yeah. him. I know you can. It's like... It, it's good to have confidence. But if you've only had two weeks of medical school, you probably can't help him more than anyone else can. True, it's true though, isn't it? But I suppose in that regard, he's got as much of a chance as anyone to save him, hasn't he? So he might as well just do it. Yeah, but but a pep talk doesn't make you a doctor. But he's saying he's probably entirely comfortable in his own security. He doesn't know what he's doing because he probably doesn't. You can't just shout at someone, "Come on and be a doctor, Val. You've got this one." He's like, he doesn't. He doesn't. He can't help. Um, 
but but Val does actually. I suppose the one thing he did know, they probably taught this on day one, is he knows artificial respiration, which probably wasn't a common knowledge in 1940. He knows CPR. So when yeah. Danny is fading and fading and seeing the white light and then leaps up saying, I didn't write the poem, it was Yates, and then claps, <laughs> his eyes roll back and he dies. Um, at least Billy Zane is able to, to pump his chest and bring him back, which he does. Yeah. So there we go. Maybe it was the right call after all, because um, spoiler alert, they do make it back and Eric Stoltz yeah. lives. Danny even if they hadn't made it back, he would have absolved himself of that guilt of having stolen Yeats's poem. Yeah, he couldn't have gone to heaven except <laughs> no, with that plagiarism. <laughs> yeah, we should have said Danny Boy, who yeah, they're the heart and soul of the entire crew and the the focal point of the movie does survive. <laughs> But that, I mean, that's that's the whole mission. Basically, they, they again and and the the course of the mission actually the the decision point for the captain Dennis and his co-pilot Luke is they've tried they've gone the bomb run once and it's clever yeah. by collapse. They um, and Dennis is not willing to just drop the bombs at the at, at the, their guesstimate. He wants to see the target, so he goes around a second time, which apparently is a great big no-no because bad things happen when you fly through the flak again. And, and Luke as is we've established, there's a there's a, a a school and a hospital either side of the factory, so they want to make absolutely sure. That yeah, he can and, see the, the bomb sign. Yeah, and in a subtext, possibly a puppy orphanage, we don't know, but we oh, can assume, we can assume that. <laughs> but, um, so he has to go around a second time, which obviously means endangering the crew and the entire bomber wing. And mm. Luke is yelling, just drop the bomb, they're all Nazis. Um, and Dennis is saying, you know, A, we, we're here to do our. The puppies aren't. <laughs> well, they are. Well, they're uh, Nazi uh, puppies. <laughs> I don't think we can ascribe a political doctrine to a puppy. <laughs> but, but Dennis is, is firstly saying, you know, we are. We're here to bomb this factory, not anything else. If we don't do it, they're going to send another wing in to do it for us. So it's, it's our jobs, etc. We've got to do this right. So he's he goes. Got a point, though, hasn't he? It is a good point. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. I think again, <laughs> in my shoes, is you know, you're almost home. You might want to just drop bombs and get out of there. But he's, he's got a good point. It is a responsible thing to do. And Dennis, we've seen, is nothing but responsible. He is shown as the straight laced one. They all take the Mickey out because he's so dull and and by the numbers. But it's Dependent, he's incredibly dependable and unflappable. There is there are moments yeah. of the entire mission when all sorts of things go wrong and he doesn't bat an eyelid. So he's clearly well, to the extent that, that that he he's brought with him a flask of hot soup that he keeps yeah. drinking throughout throughout the film. Yeah. Which actually leads to a very famous moment when a piece of flak explodes in the cabinet and, and red goes everywhere. Um yeah. and both Dennis and Luke assume the other one has been wounded and they're just saying oh, you're in shock you don't feel it but you're in shock no you're in shock i don't have to it it's not well it's definitely not me and they, they find this tomato can of tomatoes that's been exploded um i did wonder a, it's a good moment uh, it was nicely set up with him drinking his soup and whatnot yeah, but i also yeah. thought it's a good way again certainly for the for the um the imagery to have two of your cap cam guys look quite heroic because they got red blood spattered over their faces yeah. now they don't do much, to, do they well, I haven't to endanger them or you know, or, or make yeah. it worse than it is because you can't have more than one crew hit by flak. But now they look grizzled. They're not just guys in flight suits; they're bloodied as well. Even if it's tomato soup. <laughs> I wondered. I wondered when I watched that scene. I wondered whether the whole point of Matthew Modine's character drinking soup wasn't, in fact, to show us how calm and collected he was, but so they could do that scene later on. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's a very good scene. As, as you once said to me when Thomas the Tank Engine hit an enormous drumful of treacle, if a drumful of treacle is in a movie, it's there for a hitting reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, isn't it's it? The drumful of treacle exists yeah. not to be hit to by a careless yeah, You know, you're right. And I should have realised that there is there is a significant horror trope that w- what normally happens in a horror film is that the director will focus on a nail or yeah. a hammer yeah. or a shotgun or a chainsaw. 
And you know, at some point in the film, that nail, hammer, shotgun or chainsaw is going to be used. So I should have realised the soup was there for a reason. Check off soup. Uh, <laughs> you know, had, it, had it been chicken soup, it wouldn't look as heroic. It, it, it looks like Absolutely tomato soup. Absolutely tomato soup. You <laughs> were covered in vomit for the whole mission, and that's not heroic. <laughs> the, uh, but none, nonetheless, um, so he, Dennis is unflappable, and he takes them out for a second time. And of course, the second time, it's almost gone, but no, the clouds clear, and, and Val can drop his bombs, as they say, right in the pickle barrel. Um, I'm not entirely sure, you know, given they drop their bombs, and then all the other planes who are not directly above the thing exactly. also. Yeah, what do they do? Yeah. They drop at the same time, and you, you wonder how that works. Apparently, there was a way they could make it work. Um, but it did feel like, okay, you bombed the factory, everyone else just bombed whatever. <laughs> But yeah. I assume they, they, they assume... bombed the factory. Everyone else bombed the puppy factory. Yeah. The I puppy see... factory. Sorry, yeah, they, don't, they, don't factory. They, they don't factory farm their puppies. Come on, they're, <laughs> they're not Nazis. Oh, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So the uh, I, I see there apparently was a clever way of making this happen. But then nonetheless, so that they bomb and now they got to get home. And of course, having gone through all the flak now, um, they lose an engine. They have to drop out of formation to try and recover the, a fire that happens. Their Bombay doors swing open. They uh, they lose electrics. They lose fuel. Then that they you know, Eric Stoltz gets fatally So bad things happen on the way back. They'd really taken a pound on the way home. Um, um, what, what, yeah, what you have mentioned in in the meantime, the um, the, the the crew of one of the other um, uh, bombers going out on their first journey. Other and country. The were the uh, the other and country. Men. They're gone. They've been shot down. But how are they shot in half? They, they, they were shot down because because Luke finally got his mission, his, his dream to shoot the rear rear gunner. So he sneaks yeah. back to, to take over the rear gun, takes out a Messerschmitt with his first shot, which is pretty good. Um, but that Messerschmitt flies down and smashes through the Mother and Country plane, and uh, and you hear their yeah, last scream. Yeah, which is because, because, yeah, because during the mission, Stan Stan the rookie's been on on the radio chatting to Danny, saying, um, "Danny, what am I supposed to be doing? I'm a bit nervous here." And um, and the last thing you hear is just, like, "Oh my god!" And then you hear the screech yeah. of the radio as, as the rookies plummet to the depths yeah it's it, it, it pulls their punches with with what happens there um mm-hmm. and and yeah a couple of other bombers just go and they kind of they kind of reminisce about the guys that win them because of course that's 10 guys in one go um that, that yeah. go when, when a plane goes up um i did wonder was the subtext that had the more experienced tail gunner clay been on the gun would he have you know shot the measurement in a certain way that it wouldn't have flown off into its um into Absolutely. a bomber its own. i don't know whether there's a kind of formation flight you don't do that or whether it was just because luke was so trigger happy he caused that to happen but who knows um luke certainly seems very shocked and a lot more cowed he's much more willing to listen to dennis when dennis has solutions now um although well, there was a nice moment actually when uh, when luke gets to show that you know his kind of gets is overcomes um, Dennis's caution because they have to dive to put a fire out in the engine, and they kind of they they dive so fast and so hard. Dennis is worried they're gonna they're gonna lose the wing and they've got to pull up. And Luke is like, "Give me another second, what I can do, and I can do it." And of course, he does it. So they both get to prove that they both they're, they're both right in many ways. But you know, Dennis never killed another bomber with his recklessness, so he's probably more right. <laughs> also, Matthew Modine's probably had a bigger career. Yeah. And take Donovan. Come on. Well, Married to the mob? Married to Jennifer Aniston. Well, he's dated her. Really? He, 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 was, he, was, he was the man that Brad Pitt followed. So, you know, if you're... If he was the man that Brad Pitt followed. If, if you've been trumped by Brad Pitt, you can't really say you've had a bad run. I don't know. I'll take that as a... That's a, that's a real positive, that is. I'm, I'm dumping you, <laughs> but it's for Brad Pitt. So, well, that's like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. To be honest, I'm dumping you for uh, Ronnie Corbett. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say fair enough. I mean, maybe not now. He's probably had his best years. He's dead, isn't he? Yes, that's what I meant. Ah, I see. 
However, of course, still, meanwhile, though, still, still, still. <laughs> meanwhile, while this is all going on back at the airbase, um, Bruce, like, uh, Colonel Bruce, is a uh, is set up another party, um, and said, uh, he's, he's he's basically causing a lot of fuss, saying we got to welcome this crew back. He, he loves his inappropriate parties, doesn't he? He does, and and um, of course, um, David Strathairn, the Colonel of the base, says, you know, this wasn't authorized. We you know we we're a military base here. Stop it. Um, at which point Bruce goes in pretty hard, just saying like, you don't care about these men. You don't give a live or die. They're just numbers to you. He could have just said, look, I'm in charge of PR and I want to do this rather than yeah. he basically says, look, these guys are dying and you don't care. You're cold. Hot. So, of course, yeah. at this point, this leads David Strathairn to drag Bruce into his office and dump a load of letters from disconsolate relatives onto his lap and forces yeah. him to read them. This, this, so that's quite staged, but it does actually lead up to um, quite a moment. Uh, this is, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think I think John Lithgow sells it a lot more than it could have been sold because John Lithgow is then a letter is shoved under his nose saying read this and it's I think he reads it aloud and I think it's in his head it's John Lithgow reading it though and he's reading it first and it's at the moment it's quite perfunctory it's like oh dear Colonel um, thank you for sending us a letter that our son has died we and then his voice kind of breaks when he realizes what he's reading so it's quite well played and then and it, 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 it transforms into the people who would be writing it yeah but it's, and it's then from, you get little montage of stuff yeah you, you said you know it was played with a lot more gravity than it needed to be yeah that's john lithgow for you i you know i look to harry and the hendersons and i look to santa claus the movie and john lithgow really doesn't need to be putting the shifts in that he's putting in yeah and i tell you what that moved me and it may be i told it when i was younger it didn't quite move me as much because i was more interested no. in the dog fighting um but now literally the first letter he reads is from a father talking about yes his exactly son. so now you're so, a parent you experience yeah. it, it, it yeah I, I found it very moving yeah, and he was in his shoes, and it was it yeah. was yeah it was, it was a tearjerk actually. It was he really yeah, did it well? Much so. Very much so. It did feel like that was the moment when they almost felt they were obliged to put in the well, war is bad, you know, um, because the, the last letter is literally saying, "I hope the world will find there is a better way to solve its problems." Yeah, yeah um, exactly. but a lot, a lot well, until the Korean War and then Vietnam. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> at least. In fairness, I'm just thinking all, all of these all of these war films we we were yet to 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 experience <laughs> how many wars you know we're running out of films to make let's have a war so we can make profound films about how war is terrible it's never happen again um, uh, but up to that point actually there were there were some yeah they could they could have been genuine letters because there were little touches about from relatives you know talking about their husbands or brothers or parents and it was it was queer it was it was a it was a little heart grab moment um it's needed i think it's needed though because um, I mean, the, 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 I wouldn't say that the film necessarily glorifies war, but there wasn't. It's not really anything in the film up until that point where you think, "God, this looks awful." Yeah, even though, even the bits sort of with um, I mean, that mother and country go and they they again they they was clearly. It's, sad... it's it's cinematic, isn't it? It's yeah, but also I guess I guess I suppose the reality of the bomb crew is they've got to keep the pace going. So there's not a lot of time to dwell on things because as soon as as soon as one crew goes down, the flak is still flying. They still got to keep firing at the, their guns and what have you. So it's it's quite intense in that regard anyway. Um, but again, so we're coming to the, the the final landing now, of course. Um, and as they they they're coming into the landing, only one landing gear goes down. And in fact, it was foreshadowed at the very start of the movie. All the, the previous flight, all the planes made it down except for the last one, which only had one landing gear down, which caused it to fatally explode because it crashed and burned and etc. So yeah, we know nice, this is nice visual effects on that as well. Good use of miniatures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, real explosions too. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's nice to see something really blow up. Um, yeah. 
But so one landing is down and here's, tr- and here's trouble. So uh, a couple of the guys, um, whilst half the crew kind of cradles uh, Danny Boy and sings Danny Boy <laughs> to, to uh, ridiculous. Um, and then the pilot you know, desperately tries to keep the thing airborne until they can get the second gear down. A couple of the guys, including, again, um, the navigator Phil, who's shaking himself out of his funk now and he's frantically winding the, the, the crank to get the, the, the gear manually down. And I will say this was actually very well done as well. It's like... It, um, the the, the yeah, given yeah. amount is basically a shot of a wheel slowly descending. There was an awful lot of tension built in that, and it does build it up very well. You you have like plane coming in, interior crew, guy cranking, yeah. wheel goes yeah. down slowly, da, 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 and then the final. Well, it, it, yeah, it's very good, isn't it? It's reminiscent of the ticking bomb with the the the, the time going down to zero, isn't it? It, it, it? In effect, it's just someone choosing which wire to cut, but it's it's it, you know harking back to jugg- juggernaut, I suppose. It, it's tension personified, yeah. and the Absolutely. wheel going down, the wheel going down, the wheel going down has to get down to the bottom, and it's mechanical as well. So they're actually churning and churning. They're, also, also, they're, they're churning it while standing open over an open bomb. Yeah, as well, yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as they're frantically doing it. And of course, the uh, the music swells, again, the, the, the music crescendos just as the final crank locks in position, the wheel screeches on the tarmac and they make it. Um, uh, yes, and there's, you know, talk about a film of, of, of archetypes and, and dare I say cliches. There's even a dog that has been waiting for them. Up, yeah. The dog wakes up and runs, runs yeah. toward the, the plane. Yeah, and then that's pretty much it. They 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 um they all cheer. They uh, they pop a fag in Danny's mouth before he goes in the ambulance. So he's a uh, uh, Danny Danny boy daily. He can be well nicotine by the time he gets to hospital. Um, they spray champagne everywhere and it paces out. And they give a little. There's a tagline against about how sort of two hundred thousand men lost their lives in history's greatest airborne confrontation. And uh, this film's dedicated to them. And that is the end of uh, the story of the Memphis Bell. It ends. It ends rather abruptly, doesn't it? I mean, that that is it. I suppose there's nothing more to say. Yeah. Yeah. The, um. Which actually is, is it knew when to leave actually, which is quite good. I, yeah. And it, yeah, there's even a, even Bruce is fairly told to sod off. I mean, he's, not not in a huge way, but he like he 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 leaps in and tries to arrange the uh, the battered crew into a proper um, photograph formation. And they just say, just take the picture, Bruce. Even even <laughs> Luke now has no time for Bruce. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which is fair very enough. very good. Well, that is that's the synopsis of the film of uh, Memphis Bell. Um, so, dear listener. Have yourself a break, make yourself a cup of tea, uh, settle down while we come back. We'll be discussing the reasons why Hugh chose the film and we'll deep dive into some of the themes and structures that the film affords us as well. Welcome back, dear listener, um, to volume three, episode six of Weekend at Comics. We've been um, listening to Hugh uh, describe with admirable restraint the uh, synopsis of Memphis Bell, with some minor pen portraits of each of the, the key characters. Um, but it was Hugh's choice for this month, um, and so uh, I'd like to ask you: Why did you choose the film in the first instance, and um, what are the kind of themes or analyses that you'd like to kind of set us off with for this section of the podcast? Okay, so I mean, the choice for the film uh, would come as no surprise, uh, given the choice of most of my films. It was some <laughs> a film I remember fondly from my childhood. Um, so I would have been about eleven or twelve watching this. Interestingly, I wasn't the one that kind of that, that initiated going to watch this. This was my mm-hmm. older sister, um, and I initially 
I initially thought, why the hell is she dragging me to see this film? Matthew Modine. I, I think the fact that it was it was yeah, stuffed with uh, with teenage heartthrobs. Probably not Matthew Modine. I imagine some of the younger chaps there. Perhaps Harry, oh, Harry Connick Jr. Now oh, Harry Connick Jr. Yeah. I, I mean, know, to be honest, I, I did my sister was a Harry Connick Jr. She had all the albums and they were tiresome. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, one, of, one of them is okay. One's fine. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of Harry Connick Jr. played. Uh, but um, yes, yeah, so one, one of the great, one of the biggest selling American artists of the 20th century. Was I think he? he's third or fourth. Yeah. You, was that, is that real? Or did you just make yeah, that? No, that's, yeah, I'm not joking. It's absolutely true. One of the biggest selling uh, recorded artists of the 20th century. American recorded artists of the 20th century. Yep. No joke. Yeah. Mad, isn't it? <laughs> Harry Connick Jr. But just basically tinkles, tinkles the ivories. I don't know where to go with that now. <laughs> Uh, nonetheless, I was taken to it, and again, immediately took to it. I, I thought it was a, again, it was a cracking film, and I'll come into the um, again the analysis later as to probably why it resonated. Um, but it was a it was a good watch, and again, we quickly obtained the VHS. It was on regular repeat uh, throughout my my uh, youth, um, liking good war film as I do. And uh, probably again, the reason it got me was always, it was on the so it was on the back of my mind to pick this. And I think what was happened was uh, the whole uh, V Day zeitgeist of the last few months kind of just seeped into my head, and it probably just fought its way to the fore when I was, when I was thought to name a film. I'm not entirely sure. I'll, 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 this is a controversial thing. Why we celebrate V Day, not End of the World War Two Day, um, which seems to be very different things, but we do apparently. You know, we. Uh, Settle down for well, victory in Europe, though, isn't it? I mean, the war went on for quite a long time after that, and we went on for a couple of months later. Can't we wait until then? Why is this? Why is the end? I know it's, I know it's big, but why is the ending of one theatre of war a cause for massive celebration as opposed to the ending of a war? Well, I suppose, like most things, there's a jingoism to it, isn't there? In the well, sense, that's, it's it, the that's point it. of the end of the war that we're involved in, so therefore, it's well, we're still fighting in Japan. Well, we we weren't though, were we? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not you and I personally. Um, I, I was otherwise, <laughs> yeah, but, but the UK yes, was suppose, fighting yeah. was fighting yeah. in Japan. Yeah. Um, but also, um, yeah, I was thinking actually. Yeah, it's a bit seems a bit quite outdated to celebrate a victory day. Now you celebrate, you know, you you the Remembrance Day because you remember the dead. But victory, no mm. one's waving a flag now to say yippee, we won. <laughs> Apparently, they are. Um, well, no, to see round here. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was there was bunting and plenty here too. Um, but I'm going off topic. That was a mere bugbear about a, a pedantry of, of when we're supposed to be celebrating things. But uh, there was a lot of it um, last month, so that clearly was in the fore of my head. So I'll pick Memphis Bell to do it. So that was basically it was a it was a, a probably a a, 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 a well, acceptable a, a digestible um, war film. Yeah. It was easy to access for a young kid because it actually didn't raise many difficult issues. It had. Um, you know, fairly simply resolved issues there, and there was a deeper resonance going on there. Um, you could, yeah, quite, yeah. You, could, you could you could enjoy the story of it without having to find yourself challenged too much. It's also it's it's got a it's got a fairly straightforward, simple moral story as well, and it's yes. about heroism and bravery <laughs> and that kind of stuff as well. Which which when you're when when you're uh, you know a, when you're a youngster, that that kind of thing resonates with you, doesn't it? You know, it's quite yeah. a strong feeling. It's not too complicated, but yeah. there's a clear right and wrong. Yeah. Well, actually, I'll tell you the other thing this was stuck in my head for was because years later, then when I was when I was studying um, 
was studies in university. I'd uh, read one of the textbooks that was, again, given the ironic title of the best war ever. And it was basically looking at the cultural resonance of why the Second World War has this has the thing of what a great war it was for, especially America, actually. Mm. You know, there was the golden yeah. generation and it fired the economy up and it was people stood up and they did things and this kind of stuff. Uh, and and they was, won. And they won. It was kind of making the counterpoint of, well, you know, the economy exploded because they, millions were poured into it. And, you know, people may have stood up, but they died horrible deaths. And let's, yeah. not, let's not glorify this thing as, oh, God, I wish we had another Second World War. We'd show us up, wouldn't it? So, um, but it, but it, the Memphis Bell was picked out as because Matthew Modine during the publicity had given that speech saying, you know, I, I'm, I was hearkening back to a time when... Um, when uh, you know young men stood up and did what was what was right for their country and la la la, and it was almost quite a yeah, jingoistic speech of, of you know, values that have been lost there. I think it might have been Matthew Modian. There's someone trivia about the cast wore his grandfather's flight suit for the mission or whatever because his grandfather mm-hmm. served in the air force. One of one of the the cast members had done that. Wow. But so that so yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that caught my eye. In fact, the Memphis and again now looking at it further back, you know, from a film point of view, it does stand. I come into the analysis. It does stand alone. As a, as a quite a, a unique film of its time, um, it does. Yeah, which I, 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 yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah, it's it, it's it's um it's a film made in the nineties, but it has the feel of a film that was made in the forties. I think. And yet, a film um, made in the forties wouldn't have been like this. No, it wouldn't have been. No, it wouldn't have. It, yeah, you're right. It wouldn't have been like that. But it has that same feel, that same vibe to it. That same kind yeah. of there's, you, you know, you'd imagine a bit of kind of prop. It's, it's not propagandist, I suppose, yeah. but it, it's it's that it is a bit. There's a bit of jingoism there. There's a bit of kind of like pumping of the chest, and yeah. you know, this these our boys uh, do it doing their job and etc. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so to to come into that actually, with, uh, we'll, we'll jump straight into the analysis of it. So yeah, looking at it from that point of view, it's. Because it, you know, it's unique, probably for the reason another one wasn't made. This didn't start off again. It wasn't a successful film. That's another why, reason why it's a weekend yeah. at Crombie's film. Um, I don't know why it wasn't a success. It seemed to kind of do very well in my, in my small bubble uh, of people who, who all, again, everyone who I talked to had seen it and this kind of stuff. So it yeah. seemed to it seemed to go, get around the place, but clearly not not that much resonance to it. Um, maybe again the this was this was 1990 there just wasn't the taste for that kind of stuff this was um this it's was quite post- well regarded as well though isn't it I mean, it is yeah, yeah. Uh, you know it's not no one won an oscar no exactly it's not it's not one of the greatest war films ever made but yeah. uh, it's not it, it it's not denigrated it's it's a it's considered a solid yeah a solid war film yeah but again it wasn't successful it didn't start yeah. you know another any any more of these type of war films which is why it kind of stands unique because it, it didn't begin anything like that you know the next sort of war film of note was saving private ryan many years later yeah. with a very different tone it almost did start a different type of tone yeah. um and obviously if you compare the two that that was that was the difference between the two you can see why it was probably the last of its era it has almost i'm thinking almost a young guns feel to it like when young guns tried to reinvent yeah. the the cowboy yeah. genre with brat packers yeah. it was like, well, let's do the same thing but with with war movies and again yeah, didn't quite find its groove but um yeah so it's a it's a linear story i mean it, it literally is just you fly if you fly your last mission you get home um and yeah, yeah though you know, the the target is abstractly the mission it's really about the people and again it, not that it has the same resonance as master and commander but it's that idea it's about the people on the board the vessel not about what the vessel's doing in the story uh, you want to know what they're going to do with each other um, nice reference to Master and Commander as well. If, <laughs> if any of our listeners haven't seen Master and Commander, do. Yes, it's an absolute cracker. There's a there's less aerial combat in Master and Commander, um, but it's none the worse for <laughs> <Yes>. that. 
but but so it's 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 a linear story, but you you you're into the personalities of them. Um, and again, it's it's very much designed to be stirring. Um, like I said, with the spectacle of the bombers, again, which is great movie stuff anyway. Um, the uh, the the motions obviously ridden very high. Uh, the music actually we can mention um, the. It's a very recognisable tune. It's called the London Derriere, which actually yeah, was my nickname when I lived in New Cross. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, the London Derriere is, a, is, is a, again a great piece of music that absolutely captures what the music the movie is trying to do. It's a perfect synchronisation of you know stirring and emotional and, and exciting and grand and everything. So it uh, it carries it across very well there. Um, I will say in terms of so so that's its job, and yeah. you've got ten characters, you know twelve if you count the, the commanders on the base to get through, and they. They they tend to pair off, so almost like there's sort of six or seven stories to to go through, which and helps they, a lot, I think. The pairing, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. At least at least that kind of halves your your yes. attention on what you have to focus on because you know it's not like all ten characters are interacting equally with each other. They're really yeah. not. They they have. You're, you're dealing with you're you're dealing with um you're dealing with couples effectively. You're dealing with the interaction of couples. Yeah, which which helps. Um, and and again, they they have sort of micro problems to be to be resolved. Um very quickly it's it's one thing actually um i mean it, it, is, like, it is quite formulaic like say the fact that you know one lost his his medal and pretended to, to spoil it and then they realize they're buddies after all um is, is quite a little story, a little moment in it the bits where you know when the navigator is clearly i don't know what post-traumatic he's act, he's not post anything he's actively traumatic stress yeah. disorder yeah, yeah, he, yeah. and and it's it's not quite played for laughs but it's not quite taken as seriously as you might imagine because there is he's a almost sense, got shell shock hasn't he it's combat fatigue in in, yeah. in motion and the the film i guess acknowledges it there is that that sense they're just saying well just pull your socks up and you'll be all right um, there is, uh, yeah but that's where i think it it, it, it shares some of the it, it, it's a film of an older time. I think it shares yeah. it shares some of the the, the, the tropes and the traits of, of 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 films that would have been made in the forties and fifties about the war. Again, it would have been made differently, but the feel and the tone of the film is certainly of some of those kind of World War Two RAF type films that you would have got either during or just after the war. Yeah. Because of what happens, of course, to Phil is that he does pull his socks up and then he does, yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> he's, yeah, yeah, and then he's all right. He's, yeah. he's the guy that pulls the crank down at the end, screaming, yeah. "We're not gonna die!" Yeah, um, exactly. So he's, you know, it's, it's that sense of, well, you need to overcome combat fatigue is, you know, a good old chuck on the shoulder and uh, you'll be there. Um, it, well, funny enough, when I, I think I, when I saw the trailer for this, I assumed it was a different kind of movie. And it's interesting to imagine what kind of movie it could have been, because they talk about, you know, this crew has flown 24 missions without a scratch and one more they get to go home. And then it's all focused on that 25th mission, which obviously yeah. is, is very intense. But it's like each one of them. Had, had overcome a personal crisis on that 25th mission and no other before that yeah, and i did yeah. wonder what would it have been like if we'd actually taken a wide shot and had the movie begin with these 10 men arriving and meeting each other and then over the court you know with the use of montage because it was just the 90s there yeah. um you yeah. you go through their 24 missions and maybe that the, the 25th mission is the bulk of it but you you come to the fact that you know the, the two tail the waist scanners don't get on and the the navigator is slowly cracking up and this kind of stuff yeah. and whether that would have been well it's only been a different movie i wonder whether that would have felt a little less formulate right. the fact I, that I think, it have yeah. crises and it all happens uh, yeah. right then it all happens in that one flight doesn't it and actually i think uh, something i was going to suggest i think it was a if it was a film that was made more recently yeah. um with the advances of of special effects and the, the ability to, to kind of generate a, a bigger a bigger sound stage a bigger kind of visual palette i suppose i think what they would have done was that they would have had 
the 23rd flight, something happened on the 23rd flight, they get home and then the story begins almost. So maybe not a montage, that might have been the 90s one, but nowadays it would have been some big, almost like a big set piece at the start of the film, which shows them how lucky they are or shows them how bonded they are as a group. Because yeah. really, all, all we see at the start of the film, we're, we're, we, we assume, we're told that they've done all of these trips. Yeah. And as a consequence, we've got to assume that they are a tightly bonded team. Yeah. But actually, they don't come across necessarily like that because we've literally just been introduced to them. And as you yeah. say, they bond further during the flight. But these guys have done 23 other flights. 24 missions, yeah. 20, they've done 24 missions. So they should be, they should know each other inside out. They should have a metronomic view of how they do things. And yeah. it doesn't look like they do have that. So I think what would have maybe added a little bit of 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 extra kind of characterization would be you know, for the, the first 10 or 15 minutes of the film would be them trying to get back from a previous journey, from a previous mission. Yeah, yeah, something that rattles, because actually you're entirely right, that would have worked in the sense of they are they they start off new, they become a tight crew, and then the, the yeah. it starts to fray. Yeah, and that, something and that's the, and the 25th mission is is about them holding it together because they're yeah, exactly yeah. this is the elite crew, they operate perfectly. Um, and in fact, uh, again, it may be time to jump ahead. In fact, um, We'll come to the the, the the origin of the the, the Memphis Bell, but having seen other footage of you know experienced bomber crews in action, it's it's probably not great a dramatic movie because they are very calm and they are very slick and they again they um they 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 communicate and they work as one machine. That's the point of it. They've they've flown yeah. all these missions together and they have to operate as one. And in fact, to see the actual footage and hear the radios of these the crews working very different experience um, because they they again they're, they're told don't shout in the intercom because they they have a, an internal communication on the plane where they you know they say the flyers coming over to you the flyers come back over to you and they have to talk to each other all the time and they talk very calmly because they're not they can't shout otherwise it gets all confused. And in fact, on the movie they have to be a bit more dramatic. They're like saying he's coming your way, get him, get him. And yeah. in fact. You, they go he's coming over your left right shoot him please <laughs> and you um again it, it they have to add the tension to make it seem realer when in fact what you do have probably is a very stoic crew of 10 guys doing their jobs as calmly as they can because they, they, that's how they should operate well as, as in all of these types of films what you have is an ersatz hyper real style version of reality yeah. so there is there is obviously reality in there but it's but it's a a, a a hyped up cinematic version of that reality to create dramatic effect. Now, obviously, it would be a very different film if they did a kind of a, a much more realistic version of what that flight might have been like and what that bombing raid might have looked like. It might have been an interesting film to watch because you would certainly get a sense of the machinations and the intricacies intricacies and the minutiae of what it is genuinely like to fly a bomber command. And actually. In that situation, when the crew are calm and collected with their explanations and communications as to what's happening, and yet those planes are still being shot out of the sky, I think that's quite a good dichotomy. You get that juxtaposition between the calmness of what's being described and the visual horror of planes being shot out of the sky. That's a different film. That's not the point of Memphis Bell, though. No. And so I get I get why they've, they've created that it's the simulacra almost, isn't it? That yeah. that version of reality which is more real than real because it has to generate that kind of activity yeah. in it. Yeah, I was actually. It's not, it's not bad for that. 
No, we, 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 we were discussing Dunkirk earlier, which is not a film I particularly take to, but I did appreciate, again, the Tom Hardy character when he's you know, yeah. zooming around the Spitfire. He's incredibly calm and just chatting about how he's losing fuel and um, how yeah. his gauge is destroyed. Because, again, that probably that was probably more accurate than going well, That's how he would have been trained. Yeah, I'm losing fuel, damn it. Yeah, um, yeah. Expending but, um, energy like that is probably no good to anyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like you say, so it is right. That is not the point of this movie. This movie is meant to be like, here are 10 characters. You will get to like them. They will go through a, an ordeal and they'll get back and you will feel happy that they did so. <laughs> and it's, and it's yeah. that's that's because I was thinking that they though they have, you know, their moments. Luke learns a bit of humility, you know, um, the the two tail the waist scanners learn that they love each other after all this kind of stuff and Val learns yeah. that two weeks medical school is, is easily enough to revive a dying man. Um, yes. But in fact, no one goes what you'd describe as a narrative arc. They are the same characters they were when they took off as when they landed. They get a bit more battered, a bit more relieved, and a bit more, you know, they've gone through an ordeal, but they haven't changed. In fact, the the narrative arc probably belongs mostly is to the um, Colonel Colonel Bruce, the um, the uh, idiot PR guy, who actually yeah. is forced to kind of confront the fact that these bodies that he's flinging back and forth in the public eye are actually have families and friends and yeah, agree, relatives yeah. and and he's the only one who actually would go through an actual change well actually by the end of the movie he's still acting like a jerk so who knows yeah. whether I, I, yeah obviously either 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 bruce derringer or val koslowski who who as 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 the film goes on we we learn isn't a doctor but yeah. is but still is able to generate enough will to deliver something of use um in that in that point you know but but you're right you're right the john lithgow character he has a damascene moment almost doesn't he when he yeah. he suddenly realizes that he's being a bit of an idiot <laughs> and 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 the, the the reality of the situation is that um colonel craig harriman the uh, david strenin cares deeply yeah. for for his crew and i suppose feels an enormous sense of responsibility and yeah. guilt because every time he sends those boys in inverted yeah. commas out he's actually set he's 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 sending a death warrant to them i guess actually, he's extent, not sending 24 planes up he's sending 250 men up um he is yeah, and I, you see I, there's, a, there's a there's a clip at the very very start of the film where he takes a call from someone much more senior obviously yeah. and he he's been told of what the what tomorrow's raid is going to be and it's on bremen and he says well you know i was hoping to give them a bit of a break i was hoping to give them the day off they've just come back from a from a run you know this isn't gonna he looks visibly shaken because yeah. effectively he knows yeah, well, we haven't mentioned David Stephen does it. I mean, he's a good actor. He does it he very. He's well. good actor. Um, he doesn't have a lot say, to do, but he does yeah. it. He does it solidly. But like I say again, it's it's a bit odd then that Bruce was so cavalier saying he doesn't care because David Stephen or Colonel Harriman is visibly acting concern everywhere. There's never a moment in the movie when he's not clearly bowed down by the weight of what he has to do. It's not like he's swanning no. around saying la 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 la. I don't care. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's odd that yeah. he's, he was accused in that way and then has to justify himself because if in he, the it, simplicity in the simplicity of the film though yeah um, and, and again we're talking about pairs and, and couples in the simplicity of the film Craig Harriman is the yin to Bruce Derringer's yang they have to almost be opposites to to yeah. explore the two different views but put it put it the other way though what if again Bruce Derringer character was the colonel of the airbase and had spent the whole movie you know chuckling and bonhomming and backslapping and, and this kind mm. of stuff and it's only at the moment when he throws the letters down you realize he's doing all this because he knows him intimately and and it matters to him a lot because that would actually be more of a, a switch because when Davis then produced the letters you know he cares deeply about his men you've known that from the start he had that call 
yeah. for, for saying I wish I'd given the day yeah. off. So it'd be more of a shock for the audience too, thinking, oh, he's he looks like he's just, you know, glad handing and joking around, but he's doing yeah. it he deeply cares about his men. I think in that context though, that the um Harriman and Derringer would be would need to be one character to get yeah. both of those sides. Yeah. And they've split them out for, for to make explicit the point I to suppose. create drama, um, yeah, that, that time, drama which is what they've done in the, all of the cast yes yeah um and in fact again the it's interesting they they pushed the again the, that moment to when we had the letters so they could go into the montage where we could hear the, the relatives speaking in their letters because in fact it doesn't change bruce damage's character in the next scene we see him because he's still you know acting like an idiot um in front of the plane and, and joking around if he'd shown any humility or respect for the guys coming down like if you'd shown him maybe helping another bomber crew who weren't big and famous like the memphis bell you'd think oh it matters to bruce too but we don't yes, get that because right. it, it's no, it, it just it, that was we well, needed to do that letter business and then we needed to carry on with the movie and it's more convenient yeah. to keep Bruce as the idiot through the whole movie because that, that gets yeah. where we need to be. And for Bruce, yeah, right. For Bruce, it's it's all about the Memphis Bell. It's not about any of the others. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for, for, just from my perspective, I, yeah. you, you were talking about um, the reasons why you chose Memphis Bell and and um, kind of it was it was a film that was writ large, perhaps in in, in your youth, kind of nostalgic. I think actually one of the few occasions where you've chosen a film and the reasons why you've chosen a film resonate quite strongly with me as well, actually. So okay. uh, um, I recall watching Memphis Bell a lot when I was uh, younger, certainly my, my um, early teens, I, I, I would presume. Um, and um, very much was a film that, that did, that was on heavy rotation really yeah. would have had, would have had the DVD, uh, not the DVD, would have had the VHS, um, would have talked about it at school, um, would have spoken about it with my mum and dad, probably would have watched it, would have been the Friday night film that we would have had from the local video store, which I talked about, you know, it's, it's all of that kind of stuff. Memphisville, play, it, 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 it's one of those, I think it's a formative film that has, created n- n- neuron structures in my brain which has meant that i like films if that makes sense okay. and it's one of those it's one of the formative films in my youth which i enjoyed to the extent that it meant that i had a fondness for films and probably a fondness for war films as yeah. well actually and i tend to think that if if i was pushed uh, and someone said to me you know what would you describe as your favorite genre of film I, I think my heart would probably say horror films because i enjoy the transcendental thrill of a horror film but i think my head would probably honestly say it's a war film often obviously because i think a lot of war films a lot of the very best war films are also horror films yeah. um or, or certainly have very horrific elements in them necessarily so but i think that the war the war genre the war film of all types, actually, and Memphis Bell is of one very specific type. Um, I, I will, I never cease to be entertained by, or horrified by, or um, just thoroughly invested in. And I don't know, and, and it's something about the cliches and the caricatures and the stereotypes in them that are kind of, you know, I suppose, the, the reason why they're stereotypes and caricatures is that they are universal, right? We recognise in those characters, as simple as they are a very straightforward evident humanity with which we can immediately connect with films like memphis bell and i would say some of the kind of more propaganda films from the 1940s uh, one of our our aircraft is missing the battle of britain for example in 1960s part of the point of them is that they are intended to provide you with individuals and characters that you don't have to think too deeply about that you get to know very clearly that you understand and can connect with because at any point 
you know that they are going to be interchangeable with 10, 20, 30 other characters of a similar ilk or dead. Yeah, yeah. So you need to kind of connect with them. And I think that what the film does actually very well is set that up and be very open about it right from the start so that the um, John Lithgow's um, narration over the, the opening scene of um, the, the, the crew members playing American football could be seen as uh, a flaw in the film in the sense that he is setting up the stereotype. But I actually think it's a really effective technique by the director to get over the fact that there is such a large number of um, characters that you need to get involved with very quickly, sets them up, accept that they're going to be stereotypes, go with it. And what we will do in the film is allow you to get to know them on their simple terms. Yeah. And I think as a consequence of that, there's never a point in the film where you're slightly confused or you don't understand why an individual is doing something. So you're bought into their kind of process. They might not have narrative arcs per se, but they have they make they make logical decisions based on the caricature of their character, based yes, on the yeah. stereotype of the cliche. And so therefore you believe in them, right? So yeah. the ho- the hoodlum, the hoodlum um uh does hoodlumy things, you know, like short Sean Austin. Um, rascal is a rascal so you know what he's going to do and you kind of buy into that you don't necessarily have to like him I suppose yeah. but at the same time you buy into that process there's a scene before they fly out where um, they're all in a kind of military truck and um, it, it comes into scene and I was struck somewhat by the fact that even though you know it only been 10 or 15 minutes into the film or maybe half an hour into the film I was fully aware of who all of these characters were I got a sense of their general persona and personality, and I knew how they all related to each other. Yeah. And that's very, very clever and really a complicated thing to do in a film like this, when for the second half of the film, they're all in a tight, confined space, most of them with oxygen masks on. That is true. Actually. Yeah, they've they all got their flight suits and oxygen masks on, yeah. and you're never, I never didn't know who was who. You're never or confused by who yes. is doing what or, or what role they have invested into the flight or yeah. what role they play in the context of, of the film, which yeah. is which is as in the, the, the role they play in the context of what the film is trying to do is as important, if not more important than their actual character in many ways. You know, because the film needs to achieve a certain set of kind of roles or scenarios to deliver. And it does that because the characters are very sim- simple, very straightforward. They are cliches, yes, absolutely. But nevertheless, they're important for your understanding in that. So Memphis Ball has this role in, in, my, in my kind of film hinterland, which has created some kind of chemical bond in me about the life of them. So, you know, spoiler alert, there's nothing anyone can say to me about Memphis Bell, which you know, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to have anyone say a bad word about it. <laughs> and the, the, the point the point of that isn't to say necessarily that Memphis Bell is a good film. Yeah, I think it is a good film, but I don't think it matters in some situations. If a film means something in a context, it means something in a context. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will be damned by that, I suppose, in many ways. Um, with Memphis Bell, the head the head is screaming at me. It's saying, look at these cliches. Look at these characters. I, if you have any knowledge of war films, you can, you know, you've got a crib sheet of of of, of Second World War um, film cliches that you can just reel off again and again and again. But my heart 
it's cheering. You know, it's cheering them on. It's wanting them to win. Um, at various points in the film, I can feel myself welling up. You know, the end of the film, I was actually openly weeping. Um, and, you know, I think it was, what the hell am I weeping? What am I crying about? This is ridiculous. I'm crying about Danny, Danny Boy Daly. Yeah. The earnest Irish American surviving the flight home. Why am I? Why am I crying over that? And as we discussed pre-podcast, um, why am I crying over Danny Danny Boy Daly making it home and not anything that happens in 1917, the most recent film that's come out about war? You know, that to me is odd. Shouldn't <laughs> be the case. Shouldn't be the case. And yet I am. Yeah, I mean, it it, it is hard to say whether it it because I've I've never. I've never not enjoyed rewatching it. I've rewatched it many mm. times. Like I say, it was on constant repeat in my childhood. But again, since then, it's popped up every now and again. And you'd never say, oh, let's not watch Memphis Bell. It's like, oh, Memphis oh, Bell's not oh, great. Let's watch Memphis Bell. Um, but for my sins, I've not seen it for a very long time. Yeah. For my sins, I've not seen it for a very long time. So when you, when you, when you mentioned it last month, I mean, I was quite excited about watching it. And when I, when I, when I did watch it, you know, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm settling in. I've got a, you know, a nice comfy armchair almost. You know, I'm settling into yeah. a film that I know that I have loved in the past, whether I will or not now, I don't know, but actually it's doing a job, which I understand, you know, there is, it's got an anthology of aviation cliches in it. Yeah. It, it. It's, it's full of them. And I can totally appreciate if someone were to watch it and go, that was ridiculous, <laughs> utterly ridiculous. Cause I can't disagree with them. Yeah. It's just an utterly ridiculous film. But it would be hard to, again, be hard to say it's, it's not, you don't have to love it. You don't have to say it's a great film, but it's hard to, to pick holes in it because it is, it, it's it's doing what it sets out to do. What it, whatever it sets out to do may not be that ambitious, but it's 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 doing it. It does its job. It's getting well paced. It's well structured. It gets out of about eighty minutes. So it's like so it's um mm. it's a it's a um a hundred minutes. It's not a long film, and it it doesn't linger. It doesn't mm. try and get too ambitious with stuff. It's not like no. you see lots of bombers and they all talk to each other because then you get confused by who's who's where and who's what um everything is in the, is in the focus of this memphis bell you don't kind of get to see what the the german ground crews are doing you know and trying to shoot them or anything like that you don't see what the, yeah, the yeah. pilots are doing you are just in the moment of these 10 guys for most of the film yeah they've absolutely been, they've, been, they've been so efficiently established you can say you know what what their essential goals are and again being being you know they're all of an age they're all in their mid-20s or younger they're all um you know, they all just want to do their job and go home. So in fact, they all have a very yeah. common goal. So it's not terribly difficult what they're going to do. No one is going to veer off into a different avenue. They all just want to go home, and they they yeah. have different experiences on that flight. But it's 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 that simplicity, um, and it that's kind of it. It's um, it buys into that. it. It commits to that simplicity. It doesn't try and do too yeah. much. So it is hard to to criticize it heavily for that because it yeah. it, it yeah it's, I agree yeah it sort of shoots low and and hits low. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with that. I, th- I think, I think, you know, I, I could understand. I can certainly accept the argument that the film has flaws, absolutely. But I'd be surprised if someone watched it and wasn't even sl- remotely entertained. Yeah. You know, I was entertained by this, and I am fully aware of the these kinds of films and the narrative structure of the films and how they're going to play out. And when you've got caricatures like you do, you know exactly what each individual character is going to do and what's going to happen to them, actually, yeah. more, more or less. I mean, yes. I suppose if you just read um, the, the name of the character and a brief pen portrait of what they do, I reckon you could probably script the film, right? <laughs> you could probably script the film. But nevertheless, despite that, can I deny that I 
wasn't on the edge of my seat. I can't deny it. I was. I was on the edge of my seat for some instances, despite having seen the film umpteen times and knowing what each of the characters is going to do at any given moment, down to the script that they might be given. And yet I was still on the edge of my seat. I was still um, cheering them on when I needed to cheer them on. And I was still um, um, moved when it needed to be moved in some respect. It, it's, yeah. it was very manipulative, I guess, in that <laughs> regard. But um, it, it, I don't know, for what it does, it does it really well, I think. Yeah. And I guess in that uh, context. Yeah. So I guess the thing, again, the time to, to look at this, um, the broader context. So the Memphis Bell was um, named after a 1944 documentary about the actual bomber, the Memphis Bell, yeah. which um, <clears throat> it's kind of, it is and isn't the same thing. The Memphis Bell was a B-17 um, that com- was completed its tour of duty and went back on a publicity tour. The the crewmen are not the crewmen in the movie. They don't share the same names or narrative arc. So it's it's not really a remake or an homage. It's more of an homage using the same name and the same idea. Right. Um, but it, there's a, again, there's a 40 minute short on Netflix of the Memphis Bell that I watched um, <clears throat> just to get a background of that, which I'd never seen and, before. And, and ditto as well, Hugh. So, you know, just think to, to our dear listener, the sheer level of professionalism that goes into exactly. the this work podcast. we put in. The work we put in. I was quite surprised by the documentary, to be honest. Um, firstly, it was it was impressive. Yeah, they had cameras on board yeah. their 25th and final mission. <laughs> they, uh, they they showed um, in, in um, aerial combat. Um, I don't know whether the cameras were fixed because you presumably couldn't get an air crew on a bomber as well. So they they, they normally had um, they normally had uh, cameras affixed to the bottom of the planes that would just be taking. They uh-huh. were fo- they were they weren't video cameras. They were just cameras yeah. that were taking lots and lots of photographs. Okay. So it gives the image of, of movement. I would say. Um, yeah, but so I've seen quite a few. I've seen quite a few World War Two documentaries that provide footage of, say, Spitfire dogfights, yeah. for example, and some yeah. of those are extraordinary, those those absolutely cameras, extraordinary. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's stuff like that. But yeah, yeah but this, this was slightly more, different. This is more documentary style. And yeah. again, having seen it, I was quite surprised. Again, obviously, it's a propaganda film, so there were things like now go out there yeah, and blood and, yeah. and and um and buy war bonds, but it didn't pull its punches. Literally, it was saying things like these young men have to pay attention to what could be their last mission, and you saw yeah. ambulances coming in to take away the wounded, and you saw um. The, car, the dead being taken off the planes and planes not coming back and the movie or the documentary was quite upfront about this which yeah. I guess it had to just to have some veracity but having you know been raised on um, you know very you know the, the, the cliche of Harry Enfield's kind of pathé movies you know saying are we downhearted Fritz no we're not we're winning the war you'd, you'd have thought it would have been like that when in fact yeah, you know, this, this not, being seen by a 1944 audience is a lot more gutsy than I would have imagined they show I, 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 I think I think you're absolutely right what struck me about the documentary and um you know it, it, it is you know it's, it's blurry it's not very clear all this kind of stuff as well but what strikes me is that i think what the intention of the film to, was to do was that although it was a propaganda film it was intended to show an american audience the sacrifices that the soldiers or the, the pilots uh, sorry were making and the risks that they were entailing because at the time of the documentary and you know in 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 the in the um, in 1942 1943 and 1944 when there were a lot of the um, bombing raids on german cities like dresden and bremen and and and, and others as well it was perceived to have been quite, even by um, Americans and um, the, the British, quite inhuman 
um, and was heavily criticised even by um, members of parliament in the UK and um, the American general public. It was seen as very controversial, those bombings of German cities, yeah. not, not, notwithstanding that, it, you know, in war, you know, you, you don't really, you don't really do moral relativism in some respects, you know, but, but, but nevertheless, um, there, and, and historically, and as time has passed, there is a, a, an increasing and a stronger view that actually some of the, the, the bombing of the German cities and also the bombing of Tokyo, the firebombing of Tokyo as well, was considered actually a, 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 a crime against humanity in many ways. Yeah. Um, and so my feeling is that the, the, what the documentary was trying to do was to say that actually these decisions weren't made lightly and that these decisions were um, done in, in as professional a manner as possible, acknowledging the risks that individuals took at that point in time as well. So, you know, it certainly isn't a bombastic film uh, documentary at all. It is a very subdued factual documentary, which provides, I would imagine, viewers of the time, a very sobering view on what was happening. And, yeah. you know, in America, they may not have known. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe it's you know, a long way away. Yeah, maybe a, a more home front type um, thing would have had that more jingoistic uh, well, positive yeah, exactly. spin. But in America, yeah. where there isn't, you know, the home front has no touch of the war in it, apart from the occasional wounded servicemen coming home, exactly. they needed to yes. show a bit more of the, the reality of it. So what I what I haven't seen in in comparison, for example, would be a similar type of documentary made um, on the Japanese front, or uh, um, you know, f- f- fighting fighting the Japanese, for example, which might have been very different. Yeah, yeah. Um, which would have been much closer to home because obviously the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and, and, and so on and so forth. An interesting point about the documentary as well, I know that this, this podcast is about Memphis Bell, the film, but the documentary was directed by William Wyler, three-time Oscar winner um, for director, very famous American director, did Ben-Hur, Roman Holiday, The Best Years of Our Lives, Funny oh, wow. Girl, How to Steal a Million, Mrs. Miniver, The Heiress, you know, so uh, Mildred Pierce, um, Hollywood royalty, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in the same way, in the same way that Alfred Hitchcock was asked to document the um, liberation of uh, Belsenbergen um, and um, some of the other concentration camps, but actually asked that his name was taken off the documentary. That I did not know that. Yeah, n- not because he was ashamed of the documentary, but because he didn't want his name to. Um, he, he didn't want his celebrity yeah. to take away from the images that were being shown. All right. So it's interesting that a lot of these kind of very famous, very famous directors were kind of asked to do their bit, as it were. Yeah, it's very useful. I thought that the uh, the iconic plane that completed its tour of duty had a very good Hollywood name because uh, yeah, given indeed, that, yeah. in, in the movie there was things like Vacillate and Virgin and Mama's Boys yeah. and Seeker. Yeah. It's like I don't, I don't think people would have had the same no the same impact with Vacillate and Virgin. They are the crew of the Vacillating Virgin. <laughs> I mean, it's a film I'd quite like to watch, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe not not for a podcast. Yeah. I think I have seen again the, the pinup stuff. Well, I thought at first that was kind of Hollywood stuff. I think having them the the logo on the back of their jackets was a bit of Hollywood touch because they wore just regular flight jackets. But um, the, the the nose cone art was a genuine thing. They they had yes. pinups sent into them, and then, um, I think there's some talented artists working on these air bases that could replicate them. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that you said as well um, that the film originally, or, or the, the genesis of the film was um, uh, by, uh, I suppose it was David Putnam, wasn't it? A kind of famous British film producer um, of the kind of 80s and 90s, I suppose. But, and, and, and the genesis of the film was, in, in principle, he wanted to make a, 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 a British a British film about a British crew in a British kind of uh, f- flight, but couldn't get the financing for that. Yeah. I do wonder how that, that would have obviously work. been a very different film. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost, again, it, it, there is something about, again, this, um, I'm again minded of things like Band of Brothers as well. There's something about having kind of the young Americans come over onto, even though it's the UK, is to them very alien soil and coping. Yeah. Whereas if you're, even if you're a British crew, obviously you're going to war and you're in a bomber, but you can go down to the pub and you're at home. Um, and it's, um, oh, yeah. Whereas the, the, these Americans, are, they're nothing's at home to them. Everything is odd, and and they're always off balance. So they're, it's it's they're almost constantly on campaign, um, which gives I think gives it a different tone. When you compare, say, American war movies and British war movies, there's something different about it. In the British movie, there is at least a home front to go to. You know, mm-hmm. they, when he's off duty, they'll go home to his parents, or he'll go home to his mates and have a drink or something like that. And it's it's not the sense of you're thousands of miles away from home and there's an ocean between you and home. You're right, actually. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I might be completely off the mark here, but but for 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 an American soldier or pilot, um, I would Im- or sailor, I suppose, I would imagine that fighting in Europe at the end of the Second World War would have felt slightly alien, and you would have felt like, what? Why am I here? What's the point of this? Um, you know, I just want I just want to get this done and go home. I don't really understand why I'm here, although I'm sure that, that people would have had an understanding. Whereas for uh, a, a British soldier, pilot or, or sailor, it would have been, I'm fighting because of this. Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, it's a very there's, different thing. Yeah, there's the ships coming into the country through being yeah. torpedoed, the bombs yeah. raining on our cities. It's a very real thing happening yeah. you strike back it. But yeah, such an interesting one. Um, any other comments on Memphis Bell? Should we go to similar movies? No, nothing for me. Um, no. Any any other similar movies that you would recommend um, watching as in a double bill or dare I say a triple bill with Memphis yeah. Bell? I mean, given it's it's a you know a war movie, um, it's going to be it's it's the obvious ones. It's things like Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo, Six Three Three Squadron, um, yeah. the yeah. Battle okay. of Britain, Mosquito Squadron. So it's but again, all of these are you know at least thirty or forty years apart from Memphis Bell. Yeah. I yeah. couldn't think of a similar movie. In, in, of that was um contemporary to, to, to memphis bell it's a it, it's it's a it's it's a it's an odd one to stand out with it, it's it stands out in an island of its own doesn't it really yeah. um it, it, yes you're you're right um you're looking at the 60s really the battle of britain i think is is uh, um i feel that i would add to that as well yeah. um which would have been late 60s i think and and, and after that you know, you're probably looking at it's, it's, it's you know, 20, 30 years before Memphis yeah. Bell comes along. And then uh, since then, I think, you know, I suppose you, uh, they're not really linked, but you've got films like Dunkirk, I suppose. Yeah. But they're not quite the same thing. So I don't think they're, 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 they're attempting to do, they're attempting to, they're attempting to present, they're attempting to present a particular part of the war in a very different way to Memphis Bell. I don't think either is right or wrong, particularly. Yeah. I know we have differing views on Dunkirk. I think it's an exceptional film. You're less keen, um, but I, I think that they are that they 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 share they share a I suppose they they share a kind of a, a, a structure in some ways, but they're not really that linked. I think you, I think realistically, for for things that are very very linked, you you have to go back to either during or just after the war. 
Yeah. Although, interestingly, the, the closest contemporary, I think it was not on film, it was on TV, ran about the same time. Uh, it was an ITV drama called A Piece of Cake that followed oh, uh, I remember Spitfire, that. Yes. Yeah, a Spitfire yes. Squadron. And interestingly, that followed the path of what I assumed the Memphis Bell was in the case of you meet them and all the pilots are fresh faced and, oh, it's going to be so exciting. And within a very short space, you know, barely a year goes past and it's they are psychologically torn to pieces. It's it's it's, a, it's kind of a drama that pulls no punches. Like even the lead character who, who is, is completely devil may care and you know the best he's the he's the the ace pilot he dies at the very end of the movie and just crashes and everyone goes oh damn he died too um and everyone's forlorn but it literally is all the all the 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 flash characters and all everyone they're just either psychologically broken or shot down or wounded and it's it's but it's the complete opposite of almost the memphis bell landing on one landing gear and everyone making it home it's like this is where they started they've all been destroyed by this experience and I wonder if that had been the British movie the guy wanted to make, mm-hmm. would have because that would almost fit a much more British sensibility. Literally, the uh, end of this series ends up with like the the, the last survivors of the squadron coming down after the, the, the dogfight, which was the Battle of Britain, all completely shattered, and then they're told that some of the the big the biggest names in their squadron were shot down. They're going, "What? He died too?" And then one guy goes, "Oh, um, we heard a speech saying it was our finest hour," and they'll just look, going, "What?" <laughs> And, oh, and it, really? it ends on that beat, and it's like okay, <laughs> that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's such again, it's interesting that it would again maybe you can get away with it because it was that kind of turn of the nineties thing. It was post Cold yeah, War. Yeah, yeah. You were allowed to be a bit more anti-war about things. Um, there was there was no jingoism in it, no tub thump, but it, but it was an aerial drama with a core group of characters, which made me think, oh, that's that's probably the closest you get to Memphis Bell, but with a, with such a different spin on it, um, it was yeah. really to think of. Okay, uh, yeah, I, I do remember that um, vaguely. Um, and the dog gets shot. From, <laughs> oh, God, they say that! <laughs> Spoiler alert. It happens oh. very early on, so it's not a major thing, but they're like the, the one of the, the guys has the dog, and he gets shot down very early, and the dog is howling, howling, howling for its mouse to come back, and the cow just walks out and puts a bullet in its head, and that's the end of the first episode. Um, so was that, was that 80s or 90s? It, I think it was late 80s, early oh, 90s. That's, I, 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 yeah. Thatcher's Britain. That is Britain. But it, you know, it's interesting that the Memphis Bell, the first thing that happens is the dog runs up and Luke gives a big old cuddle. Very different, right? Very different. I'm sure that dog too was a famous dog. I'm sure he was like he was like on Woof on a CITV or something. I'm sure he was a performing <laughs> dog that he had uh... So you talk about good casting, that dog too, you know, he had a, he had easily as good queer as Tate Donovan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he didn't didn't date Jennifer Aniston though. And what would that we know of? Not that we know of exactly. And um, the, the other, the only other film I was going to recommend um, is it, called One of Our Aircraft Is Missing. I mentioned it earlier. It's a it's a Pressburger and Powell film um, from the um, early forties, which was made. It's a propaganda film, which was made during the war. But it's it's uh, it, it takes on it expands the story of um, some of the kind of information uh, newsreels that were. Uh, delivered at the time where um, often they would the, the 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 newscaster would say you know, a raid took place last night over you know I don't know Bremen for example one or more of our aircraft is missing and then it would expand on the story behind one of those aircraft that are missing. But what's interesting about that? But it's a very good film actually. Um, what's what's really interesting about it is at the start of the film it actually it it, it is, there are only six kind of six main characters in it, but it, but there's a there's a narration um, at the start of the film that describes each of those six main characters. 
in very stark cliches, much like what happens in Memphis Bell. Oh, right. So I wonder if David Putnam might be fully aware of that particular scene from one of our aircraft in missing, and he thought that would be a really good technique to use in this, because it, it does the same thing in one of our aircraft in is missing as well. It puts you very clearly into the the view of who these characters are, and so you don't get confused as it goes later on. So it's just quite an interesting kind of dichotomy there. I have to watch out for that one. Here's actually one more thing that I got from the documentary of Memphis Bell that, that it compared to reality in the, in the cinematic. In the movie of Memphis Bell, um, the way that a lot of the crew board the plane, some of them go up the ladder to the main body of the plane, but the ones who are who fight in the nose cone, like the navigator and the, uh, the bombardier, um, there is... Underneath the gnome, there was a hatch, and it's about it's a head height. And the way they board yeah. is they kind of they put their arms up, oh, yes. and they do an incredible chin up that they they Don't launch themselves. It. I, I remember thinking like, not on my best day at any point <laughs> in my physical fitness of my life could I have achieved that. These are <laughs> you would have failed at the first hurdle. I literally, I would have had three of the crewmen beneath me trying to give me a boost as I with my yeah. little one waddled into yeah. the aircraft. Uh, you know what? I, I I watched that and thought, well, well done, well done. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. do a couple of them, but but then having they watched the documentary and the actual airmen, yeah, you know, the heroes that made these raids, they had a ladder. Of course they did. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't need to do that. They just they crawled up a ladder yeah, yeah. and then they flew off into enemy territory. They didn't need yeah. to do a chin up to show how awesome they are. And it's like that's the thing with Hollywood and reality is like reality, you just get a ladder, and in Hollywood, you do that chin up. Like, oh, look at that. <laughs> Very good. Well, I think we have exhausted our analysis of Memphis Spell. Yes, um, so slow the flaps. It's a it's windy landing gear <laughs> in. Yeah, indeed. Um, let's uh, allow our dear listener um, a comfort break um, to top up the teapot with a, another tea bag or two Check perhaps. Filters on your oxygen mask. Saliva freezes at this temperature. And we don't want anyone passing out. And when we come back, we will give our scores uh, for Memphis Bell and we'll reveal what the film for episode seven of Weekend at Commerce will be. So join us again soon. Welcome back, dear listener. Um, You have been privy to a deep dive of Memphis Bell. You may not know that. Uh, You may not feel that you've been privy, but you have been. Just, just know that you've been privy. Um, and uh, we now at the point of the podcast, which um, we all look forward to most of all. It's nearly the end. Um, but before we get to the end, we've got to reveal our scores on the doors. So, Hugh, you chose the film. Yes, so um, you reveal your scores for Memphis Bell. Like uh, many of the films we watch here, again, I came into this on the cusp and it was the conversations we've had that, that put me down on one side or the other. And I think... Um, like I say, everything about it, you know, though it can it can be cliche, it can be in many senses a little bit shallow. It's it's well paced, it's well structured, it's genuinely moving. There's there's strong cast in it. Um, no one really lets the side down. And I suppose the biggest thing is the amount of times I've watched this and has never ceased to entertain me. I think that's in itself says it is a very classic film. It's rewatchable. You can you, know, you can constantly enjoy it again and again. And I would have no hesitation about sitting down with someone recommending let's go and watch that movie. So I think that is four Crombie heads for me. Very good. Um, to you, James. Yes. Uh, so, um, as, as I've talked about at length, I think Memphis Bell is one of a number of films. It's not the only film, obviously, but it's one of a number of films that that you know helped to forge uh, my interest in film more generally when I was younger. It's a film I've seen a lot, really, over the years. Although, as befits Weekend at Crombie's, not for a very long time, actually, for no reason than it 
just falls out of your consciousness, I suppose. And, and, and it's nice when you get to relive an old friend, as it were. I think that the film, you know, it's not perfect film. It's, it's flawed in some ways, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll argue anyone um, that says they don't find the film entertaining. I think it's a, it's a, it's a rip roaring film. It's full of bravado and brio. It's got a cast um, that put a really good sterling effort into it. Um, I was moved. I was entertained and it's a well-deserved four disembodied crombie heads from me as well. There we are. We're in accord. Four disembodied heads each. We are. We are. We are indeed. Um, and uh, yes, uh, 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 it was. It was good fun um, rewatching Memphis Bill after all these years. I think. Excellent. Right. So, what is yes. going to be the film for next month? Now, I had originally, as you know, Hugh, I have a plan of my weekend at Crombie's films. They're all set out at the start of the year. Um, and I, I know which films I'm going to choose each month. But uh, because you chose a war film in June, my <laughs> film of July I have changed, uh, which was going to be a war film. Now, it should come as no surprise that plans in 2020 have not quite panned out <laughs> as you'd expect indeed, them to. So I have removed that war film from my list oh, for this shame. year. It may come so up this again year. This year, I, I, my yeah. choice has denied me a war movie for a whole year. Well, if, yeah, but the thing is, I've now said it, uh, it was a war film, so you'd know that either if it's not going to be this, the next month, it'll either be September or November. So there's only two more. So I've got, it'll be, it might be next year, it might be the year after. Who, who can tell? <laughs> so I've rejigged a few things around. And okay. the film, and I, th- I think this, I think this is a useful film because um, we, we've, well, I won't go into details. We'll, we'll talk about it when we, when we actually watch the film. The film for July is going to be Read My Lips. Read My Lips. Read okay. My Lips. Okay, I will leave it at that. Say no um, more. Ironically, I cannot because we're speaking over the medium of, uh, of Skype and we don't have the video on, but I will take your word for that. Yeah, I read, will read, hear your words in my ears yes. without reading. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on that on that uh, bombshell, we... Uh, pardon the pun, I suppose. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't end a movie about a bomber crew on that bombshell. Yeah. On that moment of solemnity, we would like yeah. to wish you all a very peaceful and a very healthy weekend at Crombie's. Good evening, all. Weekend at Crombie's. Okay. Well, I often do masturbate whilst doing the podcast. <laughs> that didn't come out organically. <laughs> it didn't, did it? Oh, well, no. <laughs> so to speak. Oh.